What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on now? We're no longer live. We had a great no, live we are, we are alive. <laughs> we are alive, but we are no longer in front of a studio audience. That was so much fun, Danny. I really enjoyed it. I that. know. I really want to do more of it. For those who didn't listen, go back and listen to our last episode before this one, as they used to say in the 1970s, performed before a live studio audience with, uh, with the Amy, great Amy Wal- Walter. great Amy Walter. But today, we're talking about hypersonic missiles. We are talking about this development that the Chinese tested a hypersonic weapon system that General Milley said is extremely concerning. He called it a near Sputnik moment. Apparently shouldn't have caught our intelligence community by surprise, but apparently did, or at least some in the intelligence community. This is a missile that can go faster than the speed of sound, hence the name hypersonic. And it also, unlike a conventional ICBM, it's maneuverable. Normally, an ICBM goes up on a trajectory. You can figure out where it's going based on the trajectory and intercept it. This one is mobile and maneuverable and really complicates our ability to defend the American homeland. I think that's true. I'm happy to report that General Milley, the chairman of our Joint Chiefs of Staff, has, I think, at this point, never said anything I agree with. And uh, You mean he's wrong again? Well, I mean, after that, that whole defense of critical race theory teaching in the Pentagon, I, I was less than thrilled with him. And I think he's wrong. I don't think this is a near Sputnik moment. I actually think that this is a bigger failure on our part, not because they have suddenly, they, the Red Chinese, have come up with this huge new thing that's going to defeat us and steal our precious bodily fluids. Yes, folks, as an aside, we are all about movie references today. And that comes from Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> But not because they're going to come and steal our precious bodily fluids, but that, in fact, the Chinese have been working hard while we have been busy talking about who should go to what bathroom. Well, here's the thing. First of all, let me commend you for using the term red Chinese. This is a term of art that existed during the early Cold War, calling it red China. I think we should bring it back because it's really never been more appropriate than it is today. So we're going to talk about red China on this podcast. Number two. I think you're absolutely right. This is part of a larger problem, which is that for whatever reason it is, whether we're focused on gender and bathrooms and CRT or whether we're focused on fighting terrorists in the Middle East or whatever has distracted us, we have not been focused on the threat that is rising from red China. Can I just interrupt you for one second? Because this no. is... <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I should have just prefaced that with... I was making with... a point. <laughs> Shut up, Mark. <laughs> you know... Of course, I'm making a hyper-political crack, and I know exactly who's going to text me and say, stop being so hyper-political, it turns people off. But the bottom line is that one of the arguments that a lot of the Asia people, both in this administration and I would say in the previous administration, like to make is that the Middle East and terrorists have been a distraction. You know, we are the most powerful country on earth, the largest economy on earth. And if we can't think about modernizing... Well, at the same time. Right. If we can't yeah. think about China... Russia and Al-Qaeda at the same time, woe be to us. I agree with you 100%. These things shouldn't be distractions, but I'm just saying that we have not been putting the investments in. But I'll tell you what's the big distraction. We just had Bjorn Lomberg on this podcast. And one of the points that he made, and I encourage everybody to go back and hear it from the horse's mouth, he made the point that 
climate change is not, in fact, an existential threat to America. It's a problem. It's a manageable problem that we can deal with manageable policies. I'll leave all that to you to go back and listen to his arguments about it. But we are treating it like it's an existential problem. And when you have an existential problem, you throw everything but the kitchen sink at it. And that's what the Biden administration wants to do. They want to spend trillions of dollars on green energy and forcing us to give up our fossil fuels and doing everything because there's a meteor headed for America, right? There's a meteor headed for America and all of humanity is at risk. Well, you know what? You know what is an existential threat to America? Red China. (laughs) Seriously, Red China is an existential threat to America. We have a country that was not until recently a peer competitor, is now considered a near-peer competitor. Not too long from now will be a peer competitor if it keeps making these investments. And we should be throwing the kitchen sink at this problem. Right. There should should be be skunk works everywhere. There should be skunk. We should be developing weapons to counter this hypersonic missile. We should be developing weapons to hold China at risk without having to put the American homeland at risk. We should be forward deploying different capabilities. We should be coming up with all sorts of strategies. We should, like the Chinese, have a 355 ship Navy, you know, (laughs) because they have achieved our goal, apparently. Um, You know, Sorry for laughing. It's just, it's so absurd. People can't believe it. So listen, whenever somebody says this is an existential threat, a lot of people turn off the sound because it sounds ridiculous, hyped up, way to get more money, way to get people to pay attention. And I think the thing that is important to understand here is that we've become so used to being the sole superpower that we don't think about these threats in a very serious way anymore. And what folks don't understand is the better the other side is, the better our enemies are, first of all, the more we need to give up. Should we fight for Taiwan? Well, it may not be worth it. may not be worth it because the Chinese have A, B, C, D and can defend us. But it doesn't just stop with Taiwan. It's we didn't fight for Hong Kong. Okay, maybe we won't fight for Taiwan. A devastating moment. But what about Japan? What about South Korea? What about Australia? Where do we draw the line? You know, this is how we get into world wars because, yeah, maybe we don't fight for the small things. But eventually, powers that want to take the small things eventually start grabbing for bigger things, and we can't let that pass. And this is what these developments do for the Chinese, is they force a different calculus on us that leads down a very dangerous path that could actually bring us to a serious war. Here's also the other thing that we need to appreciate as we enter more deeply into the 21st century, which is that we've been pretty used to being impregnable here. You know, World War II happened over there right? There was no fighting here in the United States. What shocked us about 9-11 was the ability of an adversary to hit us at home. Well, you know what? Guess what? If the next war happens, if we don't get our act together and start developing the proper defenses and countermeasures to deal with a rising China, they will be able to hit us at home. They're going to have cyber weapons that can take out our electric grid and other capabilities. There's all sorts of ways that they can deliver pain to us. And, you know, we always assume the only thing that could hit us is a nuclear weapon. And no one would do that because of mutually assured destruction, right? There's lots of ways that they can hit us that are subnuclear now, both with conventional weapons and cyber weapons that can really do mass destruction and really put us at risk. So we need to get ready for the 21st century. On the cusp of 2022, perhaps it is time that we get ready for the 21st century. Two oceans and friendly neighbors to the north and south are not enough anymore. And this is, I know it's an overused phrase, but if you really wanted to consider an existential threat that requires us to put all of our resources and all of our focus and all of our energy, it's 
dealing with the military buildup coming from China, because by the time the climate kills us a <laughs> hundred years from now, this will have already destroyed our country if we don't deal with it. Or certainly our country as we know it and yes. like it to be in the world today. So Mark and I, not being experts on the question of hypersonic missile defense questions, invited somebody who really is, hands down, probably one of the best people in town. Tom Carrico is a senior fellow with the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank much like our own here in Washington. He's the director of their missile defense project, and he's also a fellow at the Institute for Politics and Strategy at Carnegie Mellon University. He knows all about this and was generous enough to share his time with us while he was actually busy doing a couple other things. So we have a little interference while we talk to him, but I think you'll find it very much worth it. Here's our interview. Well, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you uh, for having me. It's great to have you. So here's the question on all of our listeners' minds. What the hell is a hypersonic missile? How is it different from an ICBM? And why does everyone in Washington have their hair on fire about this? Right. So I imagine you're probably talking about the report of the Financial Times story about the Chinese you know, went around the earth and then came back down kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I want to answer the question you actually asked, Mark, which is, what is a hypersonic missile? A hypersonic missile is literally that which goes Mach 5 or faster. And the truth of the matter is every ICBM reentry vehicle is going a lot faster than that when it comes back through the atmosphere. But what a hypersonic missile is really is not just the speed, it's the combination of speed, maneuverability, and the fact that it's kind of flying at the very high breaches of the atmosphere. So think the space shuttle was hypersonic coming in, and it was a glider, but it just was coming down. But think kind of the X-15 or the space planes of yesteryear, but the fact that material science has gotten a whole lot better, and that now we're, and our adversaries, have figured out how to do this in a way that is kind of beneath where our exoatmospheric or outside the atmosphere missile defense interceptors function, but also, frankly, higher than our aircraft and many of our lower tier air defenses function. So it's a, it's a big advance in the field of missilery broadly. It's also been a long time coming. And so this report about the Chinese missile and the new Chinese military power report, which talk about this issue, are all kind of in that vein. So I want to ask you a, a big, broader question. But before I do, because I want to educate myself, when you read this up, what you see is there are actually two types of hypersonic weapons. There's a hypersonic glide vehicle and there's a hypersonic cruise missile. Help. What? Right. So the answer is yes, but. And so, as again, what is hypersonic? Hypersonic is a speed. It's not a thing. Hypersonic is an attribute. And so it is an attribute that can apply to a number of different types of missiles. You don't acquire a hypersonic thing. You acquire a missile that may be supersonic or maybe high supersonic or hypersonic. If this sounds a little bit, you know, weedsy and pedantic, okay, fine. But it's important, I think, because it's misleading to not recognize this difference. So yes, you just identified two types of really propulsion types, a glider. So think a ballistic missile that then releases something, a a space plane kind of a thing that kind of comes in and glides based on that momentum that it has really at the top of the atmosphere. It's kind of bleeding energy while it goes, but it's going so fast that there is, even at those very high altitudes, 
has enough air molecules to give it some lift, okay? And that has a very different trajectory than an ICBM that just goes very high and it comes down on a ballistic trajectory. The second category that you mentioned is a hypersonic cruise missile, and that's just kind of what it sounds like, a really fast cruise missile. Fewer moving parts than some of the cruise missiles we have today. A scramjet type engine is the leading technology there. It's an air breather. It sucks in air, it's boosted, and then once it's going, it stays going really fast. Not nearly so fast as the glider that you mentioned earlier, and not nearly so high altitude, but nonetheless is an important type in its own right. But I'll just say that those are two illustrative types. But this is likely a category that's going to further blur and diversify over time. And you recognize that and you appreciate that by appreciating hypersonic as an attribute rather than a thing. Starting back with the Reagan administration and SDI, we have spent decades and billions of dollars building strategic defenses against intercontinental ballistic missiles. And everybody now knows how these work. The missiles go up, they go out of the atmosphere, they come down at a trajectory. We can take them out like a bullet on a bullet. How is this different and how does this evade our defenses and how do we need to adapt? Right. So it was uh, 30 years ago and change that the United States put the Soviets and the Russians on notice of our intent to deploy exoatmospheric space-based interceptors. They were called Brilliant Pebbles at the time or GPALs. I remember that. Yeah, right. They were especially designed for that big ICBM threat, right? So you mentioned SDI. This was kind of the SDI in 1991, if I'm not mistaken, when that was rolled out. And you know what's happened in the last 30 years? The threat's gone lower. The threat's gone lower beneath the reach of exoatmospheric space-based kinetic interceptors. And the hypersonic phenomenon is a big piece of that. Another piece of it is, by the way, the proliferation and the, you might say, the democratization of the subsonic cruise missile and also of the UAVs, basically. And our friends, the Saudis and lots of other folks in the Middle East, Syria attack last week, an attack on the uh, Iraqi prime minister's, I think, house or office this past week. So the threat has become more endoatmospheric. It's gone lower. And it's become more maneuverable. And to answer your question, Mark, it's the maneuverability combined with the speed and that unique altitude that it's operating at that makes it so different from the ICBM. Because the ICBM is fundamentally predictable in as much as it is ballistic. A ballistic has a highly predictable parabolic Keplerian trajectory, and you can figure out exactly where it's going once you have an early track on it. These things, it's kind of like a bomber a large aircraft that travels long distances, you don't know where it's going to turn one minute to the next, right? And so you may have a general idea, but it's a broad range of possibilities of where it may go. It makes detection harder. It also makes defense against it harder. And I think it's confusing even for people who follow this pretty closely. First of all, we've got a lot of acronyms out there. And second of all, you know, we don't always know what these things mean. So the word Sputnik has been out there because it was a huge inflection point in the race between the Soviet Union and the United States back in the day. But... One of the things that I remember, actually, and that this reminds me of a little bit, and I want to know if you think that's correct, is the first U.S. outing after the end of the Cold War was really the Gulf War. After Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait and the United States sends, you know, more than half a million troops to the Gulf, and we end up showing off 
what we've been working on all these years, including the investments made during the Reagan administration, and we have the Patriot missile. And damn, hey, that hey. thing can't shoot down an incoming missile. For me, that was a big, big moment that scared a lot of our adversaries. What is this? Look, uh, this aggression cannot stand, man, as, as, the, as the dude has said. But, uh, the big Lebowski reference. We love that's it. That's right. Let's pull the clip. This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. I'm glad you made the connection there, Danny, because the Gulf War, look, the Patriot was at that time an air defense interceptor. It was thrown into service. And what it actually did in the Gulf War eh, is a little bit of a, an object of debate. But by the time 2003 rolled around and a very different and evolved Patriot missile was there, it hit every ballistic missile that it was targeted at in the 2003 conflict. But nonetheless, the Gulf War in 1991 served as a kind of a galvanizing moment. It kind of inspired the imaginations of folks on Capitol Hill and all these other places that said, hey, we don't know what exactly what it did in 1991, but we want some of that. And so it provided a galvanizing moment to say, this is a mission that we should get behind because of the long-term strategic benefits. In a similar way, we're up against a much more maneuverable threat today, this hypersonic glider thing. It needs a patriot moment. It needs some inspiration. It needs some more radical thinking about how to get after this because it's going to be a hard problem. Fundamentally, yes, they're silver bullets, but they're not unstoppable. I like to call this a, a complex air defense problem rather than a ballistic missile defense problem analog. So we can get after this. We just have to do so. So I remember during the Gulf War, everybody talked about the Patriot missiles, but also our cruise missile capability was the first time we had really demonstrated that in a huge way. And I remember, a, I think it was a Doonesbury cartoon of this Iraqi in a house, and the missile comes in through the front door, goes up the stairs, around the corner, chasing him around the house, and finally takes him out. That was fantastical at the time, but it sounds like, you know, basically what's added here is maneuverability. You know, once you fire a ballistic missile on a trajectory, it's going. This adds the maneuverability and the ability to evade. How do you take that out? So first of all, I want to say, since you brought the Doonesbury cartoon too. I had that on my fridge. Um, that cartoon was kind of depicting the precision guided munitions thing. You know, remember the video of the PGM going down the smokestack in 91? I think it's really depicting that. And this is where the hypersonic strike mission capability, I think there's a weird discussion going on out there. Everybody thinks that this Chinese test that went around the world and came back down, everybody looks at that and they say, oh, it's a better way to do an ICBM. It's a better way to, to deliver a really big nuclear weapon. And that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is back to the Gulf War and the precision guided munition revolution is this is a better way to do a cruise missile. This is a better way to achieve non-nuclear strategic attack, to be able to take apart the United States and our foreign forces and all these other things without any radiation being released. And that's what really worries me. Not the big out of the blue nuclear attack, but rather the, I'm going to attack you with conventional missile rate that is so sophisticated and will attack you and stun you, shock and all like, in the way that you attacked Saddam Hussein 30 years ago. I think the Chinese are very happy with the way we're talking about this. We are literally talking about this, even though you say it's not a Sputnik moment. I agree it's not a Sputnik moment. I think a lot of the talk that we're seeing is making China appear larger than life, too tough to beat, too invincible to take on over something like, say, Taiwan. And I think they love that. But that's an aside. I want to ask you a much more technical question. So 
yeah, okay, I get it. An ICBM that follows a ballistic trajectory goes up, and the way that you know you can shoot it down is because you know where it's coming from, and you know from the minute it's shot off, you know exactly where it's going. This is obviously played to the advantage of the Israelis who need to take out launchers in Lebanon and Syria. But one of the things that this does is because it stays right about at the atmosphere, it's bouncing around up there, this hypersonic glide missile or this other hypersonic uh, by cruise missile. Shatner, right? <laughs> Just gliding yes. right, right by William Shatner and Jeff Bezos. Somebody cue the rocket man. There are so many funny cracks we could make here. But doesn't this piece of equipment get really hot? And isn't that an opportunity for us with infrared, which is something that really, obviously, we haven't had to deploy, we haven't needed to deploy it. But should we need to? Isn't that going to provide us options for defense? Wow, I'm impressed. You did your homework. My secret is I have a tutor at home in the form of the husband who recommended we should have you on, whose business this used to be at the State Department. Good, good. So a couple things. One, you're right. It's cooler than the big hot plume of the launching of an ICBM, but it's also hotter than that cold reentry vehicle that's out in the vacuum of space, right? That's not emitting any heat. There is a difference, of course, between the glider that's, of course, constantly doing that friction at a much higher altitude and speed, and those slightly slower scramjet cruise missiles thing. So the short answer is yes, it is going to be the thermal signature that's critical to all this. And that's why we need, above all things, space sensors, a space-based sensing layer for all this stuff. And I'll just say among certain, let's just say, missile defense types, in the past couple of decades, it was all hoorah, space-based interceptors kind of thing. But I'll just tell you, from where I sit, it's the space-based interceptors thing, the space-based sensors, rather, that is the most critical function, the most critical capability that we need to get after. It kind of seems a little bit passe. It kind of seems a little bit not as sexy as the space-based interceptor, but that's what is most needful at this moment. When you talk about a space-based sensor, that doesn't sound hugely next-gen. Why don't we have these things already? That is a fantastic idea. So (laughs) around the same time that the Patriot moment was going on in the Iraq war, the George H.W. Bush administration was talking about what I think at the time was called brilliant eyes, right? Or Sibbers low. Clinton, Reagan, they're all talking. Six some administrations have come and gone and everybody's kind of sort of been for space-based sensors for missile defense and nobody's actually done it. Why? Well, a combination of It just hasn't been as urgent a need. And with the disruption of the Soviet Union, we kind of thought, oh, we can get by with the ground-based radars and all that kind of stuff. And so there's been a reinvigoration over the last couple of years, and there is a program going on right now to get after this. There's contracts been awarded and all this kind of stuff, but it has to actually get there. But it has been a saga. It has been a long-running saga. I wrote an article in Politico a couple of years ago when the Trump administration was kind of dinking around and wasting time on this about just how long and how much time has been wasted. So space-based sensors detect them. How do we take them out? Okay, so the, the sensing is the most important part because it contributes to early warning, to attributions, so even and until you get the capability to take them out, you still at least know where they're coming from. You know that there is an inbound threat. In the same way that we today have deterrence keyed to early warning 
off of ICBMs. So the sensing is critical for multiple missions. But on the defensive side, it's going to be tough. I'm working on a paper on this right now. It is a tractable problem. It is a doable problem. But we have to adapt because, again, we're not dealing with rogue state ballistic missiles. We're dealing with near peers with a complex maneuvering aerial phenomenon. And so we can do this. We're good at air defense. And again, remember those Patriot missiles from the Iraq war, they were air defense missiles that were put into ballistic missile defense duty. So once we kind of reorient our mind here to the new phenomenon, I'm sure we can get after it, but it is going to be a challenge because so much maneuverability is involved here. So I really like a quote of yours, only because I want to utter these words, but (laughs) you were asked about this in, uh, I think, Defense News, and you talked about how the United States tends to focus on platforms, and you said, quote, it's one thing to say, let's just shoot a bunch of missiles from Hawaii, but it's not just about shooting missiles. You have to have the complete kill chain. See, I just wanted to be able to say kill chain. (laughs) But explain to us why we're thinking about this in the wrong way and why sort of trying to pull this question of hypersonic this or hypersonic that out of the larger debate is probably misplaced. So, Danny, the kill chain is really what pulls the whole room together, to again quote the dude from The Big Lebowski. (laughs) Uh, And it's about being able to sense it and then do something with that information, right, and get an effector up there. The challenge is that we don't have the effectors today that are sufficiently fast or sufficiently maneuverable or designed to operate at those altitudes. But we'll get there. We can find ways to get after that. But yes, it is the kill chain. It's also the command and control, by the way, because these things are zipping around and moving, let's just say, out of UCOM and into CENTCOM or into PACOM and so forth. And you don't know when it's going to come down or where it's going to come down. And so we got to get better at passing the information between combatant commands. I had General Van Herc, the head of uh, U.S. Northcom, over to CSIS a couple of weeks ago, and we chatted about this. And he's really pounding the table about the need to pass information and act on information much faster, much, much faster than we are doing so currently. And the hypersonic or long-range cruise missile challenge, for that matter, those are, I would say, really test cases for why it's going to be so important to get after the passing of information, therefore the command and control piece of this more quickly. Because as the kids say, it's about getting inside your decision loop. And that's what the very fastness translates to is the ability to construct a devastating attack that disintegrates all of our integrated PGM kill chains and takes us apart into little small pieces. And so that's why we have to get after all of this. Let's broaden out and talk a little bit more about the broader, for lack of a better word, arms race between the United States and China. This caught us by surprise. This appears to be, in Don Rumsfeld's famous phrase, an unknown unknown. But one of the known knowns we have is that China is quintupling its nuclear warhead capability, the number of warheads it has, from 200 to over 1,000. And they're building missile silos in Xinjiang province, where the Uyghurs are. Tell us a little bit about the Chinese military buildup, and are we doing what is necessary to keep up? So first of all, I would respectfully disagree with some of those unnamed commentators that are both calling it a Sputnik moment, but also saying, oh my goodness gracious, this is completely unpredictable. I can't believe they did this and the like. I mean, you know, what the hell is going on with your analysis that you're surprised by this? FOBs have been around since the 1970s. And I'll just tell you, the Chinese have demonstrated, if nothing else, the willingness to do everything and everything 
in order to take apart and call into doubt our particular military advantages. Explain to our listeners what a FOB is. So the FOB is what we talked about earlier, the fractional orbital bombardment, the thing that goes up, orbits for a while, and then comes back down. It can deorbit at any time, at any moment that it's passing over an area, and then it can come back down. This is kind of like rods from God plus maneuverability. Rods from God being tungsten rods that are in orbit, and then you kind of deorbit them whenever you want. It's purely conventional, no nukes involved. So this is what we were talking about earlier in terms of the Chinese test. So again, I dispute that we should be so surprised about this. So uh, Mark, you highlighted a couple other factoids from the Chinese military power report. And I'll just say each of the things you just mentioned and some others are significant upgrades since last year's report. That just tells you how much China is moving out on so many of these different kinds of missile capabilities. But you know, I want to draw a little connected dots here. And over the past several years, there was the Congress saying in legislation, yeah, we think Russia is violating the INF Treaty. And everybody was like, oh, that could possibly be right. I, I can't believe you're saying that. And then like eight months later, it's like, oh, yeah, they are. That, that's a problem. And then you have the accusations just over the past couple of years where various senators have said things about Chinese ICBM and nuclear capabilities. And everybody kind of scoffs and guffaws. And then like six months later, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's really happening. This is happening again and again and again. And as I saw somebody comment with the following phrase, what you hear here is a grinding sound. And that grinding sound that you hear is people adjusting their priors about what to think about China in terms of their nuclear and conventional military ambitions. They're going big, okay? They're going big on every front. They actually have the 355 Navy that we aspire to. They are exceeding us in every conventional metric at least in terms of over there in the Indo-Pacific. And this is a problem. We're getting to that reckoning point on so many different fronts here. So the STRATCOM chief, the strategic command called it the strategic breakout. I like that. I'm curious what you think about, and if you haven't read it, just say so and we'll cut this whole question. But in the bulletin of the atomic scientists, these two guys, Hans Christensen and Matt Corda, sort of describe China moving from minimum deterrence to medium deterrence. But in many ways, they are trying to describe what China is up to as defensive. I don't see it that way. I don't see our scholars seeing it that way. But how do you see it? That's the grinding sound. Folks are struggling to reconcile the facts and the reported facts with their preference for thinking of China as a large North Korea as content with a small number of nuclear weapons and is basically content with their place in the world. And the grinding sound that's going on here is, goodness gracious, no, they're not. <laughs> and they're doing a lot more. So I would respectfully disagree with that characterization. I'm not sure how you get from minimalist to medium. They're aspiring to maximalist. And I'm just going to make a connection here to what we talked about earlier. And that is they're building up all these nukes. But they're also putting up all this conventional stuff, all this conventional precision-guided munitions, be it subsonic or hypersonic. And what I really worry about is that what's going on here is that they're making the world safe for conventional war between major powers. And that the United States, in the face of being devastated by non-nuclear strategic attack, will just decide to call it a day. And again, it's how did we defeat Saddam Hussein? Back to that analogy here. It was with overwhelming conventional force. That is what we have to worry about today, is 
our bases, our forward power projection being called into question or defeated without any radiation being released. That would be a very problematic situation for ourselves, for our extended deterrence commitments, and for the U.S. place in the world. Well, let's talk about our forward power projection because you mentioned Russia's violations of the INF Treaty. One of the things that Admiral Harry Harris, who is the former commander of U.S. Pacific Command, pointed out is that China possesses the largest and most diverse missile force in the world, 95% of which would have violated the INF Treaty if it had been a signatory. President Trump withdrew from the INF Treaty, and everyone saw that as a Russia play. But Dan Blumenthal, one of our colleagues, points out that gives us an advantage in the sense that we could now deploy intermediate-range conventional weapons in the Pacific and forward deploy those. Right now, he says that the only possible response to a Chinese aggression is intercontinental ballistic missiles, which would lead to an unacceptable escalation, whereas if we have forward-deployed intermediate-range weapons, then that restores a balance of power in the Pacific. Do you agree with that? Should we be deploying conventional intermediate-range missiles in the Pacific? Yay, verily. And, uh, <laughs> and eventually hypersonic. Lots of different places. But let me say two things. You first raised the question, Mark, about how does one think about the INF Treaty withdrawal? Withdrawal from the INF Treaty was profoundly in America's interest. That was a treaty that started out really in America's interest when Reagan negotiated it and concluded it in 1987. No two ways about it. But not merely because of Russia's violation, but also because of lots of other world events, it had long come and passed its time. I like to make the distinction between the reasons and the justification for withdrawal, which is the Russia violation, and the deeper cause about the need to act on those reasons. And that is, among other things, the China thing. And the fact that we face a fires-centric and a missile-centric foe, and we have the gaps of not being able to field, especially ground-based long-range fires. That was what the INF Treaty governed, by the way. It didn't preclude stuffing things in an airplane, missiles. It didn't preclude stuffing things into a submarine, although, of course, we do have a limited number of tubes on submarines and ships. It specifically limited ground-based missiles of a certain range. Now, I'll just tell you, don't take my word for it. Listen to what the new Japanese prime minister, who I believe is from the prefecture of Hiroshima, what he's talking about in terms of Japan's potential need for a surface-to-surface missile. That's a big deal for Japan to be talking about. That's a really big deal. Look at what Australia has done in the past year in its shift to state its desire to acquire not just the submarines, but all kinds of air defenses and long-range strike missiles. Folks recognize the need to be able to reach out and touch the adversary in a standoff way. And that's what missiles are fundamentally, the uh, South Koreans and the Taiwanese as well. And so that's the deeper cause behind the need to withdraw from the INF Treaty. And yes, the answer is we do need to do these things. The good news is that we are doing them. Air Force, Navy, and Army all building long-range subsonic, supersonic, and hypersonic strike forces of various kinds. I would say we're not going fast enough. We're not doing enough of it, but it absolutely needs to be a multi-domain thing from land, sea, and air. So, Tom, exit question for me, and this has been sort of, I don't want to say on the front pages because it's not like a Republican winning in Virginia or anything, but for a lot of us foreign policy nerds, the question of Taiwan has really been front and center. The Chinese have been hitting the war drums pretty aggressively on Taiwan as well as on this hypersonic development. The big question for me is, does this affect our ability to defend Taiwan, do you think? Let me amend that and say, does this affect our ability to defend Taiwan if we show we have the will to do so? (laughs) 
Well, I'll just say the gravity of the Taiwan question that you pose is such that the Japanese and the Australians recognize that it's existential for them, I think especially the Japanese. And so they recognize what's at stake there. Because if Taiwan is in whatever manner taken over by China, everybody else knows that they could be next. And that's a bad situation. So does it affect it? Well, sure, it does. Absolutely, politically it does. But what I would like to emphasize is not so much one bright, shiny object, not one hypersonic doohickey. It's rather about the modernization of Chinese military forces from the ships to the aircraft, to the supersonic missiles, to the ballistic things, to the hypersonic things. It's all part of a bigger package that they will bring to bear. This is not about one particular hypersonic widget. It's about the full spectrum, everything from aircraft to ships to subsonic missiles to ballistics and hypersonic, this, that, and the other thing. And the imaginative combination that they can use to put all this stuff together and hold at risk forces in Taiwan and Guam and Japan and everywhere else. What's this all about? What the hell is going on with hypersonic missiles and all this other kind of stuff? I'll tell you what's going on. It's the role of the United States in the world and the ability of China or other folks to hold us at risk and push us back and alter the calculus of the United States in a big extended deterrence kind of question. So exit question for me, affecting all of this, there were some reports recently that the Biden administration is thinking about adopting a no first use policy when it comes to nuclear weapons. I'm assuming you agree that would be a terrible idea. If so, why? So the reason or one reason that a no first use policy that would be problematic, certainly to our allies who depend upon our extended deterrence commitments, is that what matters at the end of the day is the effect, is the result, more than the means. And if you're killed by a conventional missile, it's just as meaningful as if you're killed by something that emits radiation. And if we were to adopt something like a no first use policy, I mean, again, the United States had a first use policy in the Cold War when we were conventionally overmatched by the Soviets in Europe. The whole point of nuclear weapons as a strategic deterrent is to prevent defeat is to prevent strategic defeat, right? That's what we need to talk about and worry about. And that's why we have nuclear weapons. Last six secretaries of defense have said, this is our ultimate nuclear bedrock, our ultimate bedrock of our national security. So that's why we have them. And to say that raises doubts about whether we would use nuclear weapons to preclude the defeat and the conquest of those folks under our nuclear umbrella. That would be a bad situation be a bad situation for our national security and for theirs. Well, that's the kind of optimistic note that we always love to end (laughs) on. Tom, you have been so generous with your time and with your explanations. I feel like I can pretty much go out on national TV now and talk about missile defense. What about you, Mark? I do too as well. You you. are awesome. The dude abides. Thank you, folks. Love the Big Lebowski references. Oh. <laughs> Anyone who comes in with Big Lebowski references is going to be one of my favorite guests. I know. We're eventually going to get sued by one of the movie studios between your obsession with the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. <laughs> <laughs> you brought it up this time. I know. And then we've got the Big Lebowski <laughs> references. And I, of course, did the greatest arms control movie of all time, Dr. Strangelove. Or does anybody remember the subtitle? How I Learned to Love the Bomb. How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. That's right. 
There you go. There's nobody like Peter Sellers. And I'm worrying, Danny. Yeah. I think after this conversation, I'm worrying about the bomb. I'm worrying about the hypersonic missile. I'm worrying about the silos in Xinjiang province and all the thousand nuclear weapons that the Chinese are building, the islands they're building in the Pacific. I mean, stop me. Yeah, and no, all the no, things no. we're worried about are No, I mean, there's a, there's a long list, and you could keep going for a while. I think it was Fred Kagan, who we had on a while ago, who actually mentioned this. And if not, and I'm doing him a discredit, well, Fred, send me an email. But one of the things that I've noticed is that all of the great jaw-dropping innovations of the last century, whether it was nuclear weapons, whether it was intercontinental ballistic missile, whether it was the jet airplane, whether it is precision-guided munitions, which were really something that we unveiled towards the end of the 20th century, all of those things are now in the hands of our enemies. And when I say our enemies, I do not mean the Chinese. I mean Hezbollah has precision-guided munitions. Hezbollah uses GPS to guide their rockets to hit their targets. When Hezbollah starts to have the things that made the world stand up to attention because America developed it, maybe it's time that we started reinvesting. Maybe it's time that... Developing new stuff they don't have. (laughs) New stuff that Hezbollah (laughs) doesn't have. I don't know whether folks noticed. And, you know, again, this is in a small corner of the world. But over this last weekend, the Iraqi prime minister, who is a friend to many of us here at AEI, Mustafa Kademi, was at home and several explosives-laden drones hit his house. He could easily have been killed. This is a completely new development, and it's in the hands of Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. Again, we need to be much more alive to the developments that are going on, to the sophistication of the enemy, and we need to start upping the ante a lot. It's called an arms race for a reason. Yeah. And if you don't run, you get caught up to. Look, I am confident that there are brilliant people working on all sorts of capabilities and I wish, things. I that, wish I uh, were confident. But not enough and not fast enough and not enough money being put into it. And you know what? We've got a government where the Biden administration wants to spend $4 trillion on social welfare programs right now. We can get into a whole other podcast about that. But that's what this scaled-down bill is going to cost when we get the proper scoring of it. $4 trillion. I could find a lot of capabilities that could keep this country safe that we could spend $4 trillion on, even a fraction of that. They're cutting defense. They've increased it, but below the rate of inflation because they've unleashed inflation on us. So it's a net defense cut. The Biden administration is implementing a net defense cut while they're proposing all this spending on climate change, okay? I want to protect our country against a threat that's actually going to come to our shores called Red China if we don't do something about it. I think it's important to remember one of the big lessons of the wars that we fought in this century. When we tried to go in and help people, what did we discover? People didn't want to learn about democracy. People didn't want to worry about civics. People worry first and foremost about security. Mm-hmm. We have been in the very luxurious position since the end of the Cold War that we have genuinely not worried about security. And in the 20 years since 9-11, we have all but forgotten that that threat outside exists. The American people are lucky, and I love being the luckiest people on earth. I think we've done a lot to earn that. But the reality is we won't stay lucky forever. And once our security is at risk, all of these petty arguments that have been consuming our politics, all of this ridiculous fantasy talk about getting cows to stop 
farting methane. All of that. Plus, you're part of the podcast. (laughs) God, is he a schmuck. Anyway, all of that will fall by the wayside when our security is at risk. Thanks for Amen. Just stealing my thunder there. Amen, Danny. That ain't methane I you just heard people. <laughs> That's wisdom. <laughs> okay. And on that not so elevated note, thanks so much for being with us. Join us next week and take care, everyone. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 